This is the Juggernaut Interviews, and I'm Snigda Sour. In this series, I'll be talking to South Asian founders who have gone out and raised funding across the world at different stages of their journey. I'm a founder who's raised venture capital myself, so I know the toughest questions to ask and answer. I'm here not just to learn from other founders, but also to explain how they make the tough calls. I started The Juggernaut, a media company that tells South Asian stories because I was tired of reading the occasional news story about us. I wanted there to be more, and not just about the usual suspects. So what you'll hear on this show is exactly that, founders who are not the usual suspects, people who prove that the myth of the crazy boy genius dude startup founder is that, a myth. And what you'll hear on this podcast is stories from founders smack dab in the middle of building. Today's episode is with Lee Mayer, co-founder and CEO of interior design company Havenly. In 2013, Lee moved from a small apartment in New York City to a five-bedroom home in Denver. She struggled to furnish her new place because she couldn't find an interior designer who would fit her budget. So her living room sat empty for months. That's when she decided to launch Havenly. Now this is how you design a house. First, take the Havenly style quiz, pick all the pictures you love, that way they can get to know your taste. Ooh, I can even upload my inspiration boards. Havenly is the best design service on the internet. They match you with an amazing professional designer. Trust me. Havenly has raised over $85 million to date. Lee shared what needs to change to create space for more diverse founders and the story of her journey over the last eight years. But I also want to learn about Havenly today. During COVID, more people were spending time at home than ever before and also upgrading their spaces. At the same time, Lee shared how she faced a war for talent People working at her Denver-based company could now work for any company globally without leaving the city. I'm Snigda, and here's my conversation with Lee Mayer. Hey, Lee. Thanks so much for taking the time. I'm so excited to chat with you. Bring us back to the beginning. Tell me what the very, very first iteration of Havenly looked like, like the embarrassing one. Gosh, in the early days, well, I was our first software developer and our first web designer and our first, you know, everything really. So it was pretty bad. I think the thing that we really did and we really leaned into is the product we were selling was not the software product. The product we were selling was ultimately great design advice and a home that you really love. And so we sort of leaned into this idea that like we could kind of hack the technology product together, you know, in a pretty scrappy fashion. And so we used emails on the back end and PDFs and kind of, again, had like this janky, the technical term for it, um, site. But I think what was cool is like, when you put something together, that's that sort of scrappy, and you still see customer interest, I think you sort of know that you might be onto something. I love that you shared that story, because I feel like so many people don't sometimes view female founders as technical, but you are part technical. You had an engineering degree from Columbia. I also built part of the Juggernaut website by myself, the janky version. Tell me how your technical knowledge in the beginning helped or changed the way you built Havenly. I think to be perfectly honest, coding a website poorly for your first prototype is actually something that's probably accessible to anyone if they wanted to. I think what it probably allowed me to do is, to your point, have a little bit more confidence to do so. But I talked to a lot of women in particular who are non-technical, who are really intimidated by this idea of sort of hacking things together. But the reality is they're probably just as equipped to do it as I was. 
for me, it was maybe like setting up certain things on my laptop was maybe like a little less intimidating than it would be for, for someone who didn't have that technical background. You know, the stuff I did wasn't particularly fancy. And you, like, literally, you didn't really have to have much of a background in anything to really learn how to do it. I think over time, a hard thing for a lot of founders, particularly when you're not technical, you feel like you're dependent upon someone else to tell you the truth about what's going on in the in the sort of the technology world. And again, it's more of a confidence thing. I don't believe that I actually know much more than anyone else. Because um, again, I, I really didn't practice any of this until I started Havenly. And I also wanted to go back into the beginning in terms of how you started the business. You worked with your sister, Emily. You also had seed funding from your family. What were the challenges and also the advantages of working with family in the very beginning? The best part about working with family is you're kind of always family. So first of all, I could say something and I wouldn't have to explain myself in a lengthy way. Emily would just sort of know and and understand where I was coming from. And so like being able to have that shorthand when you're starting something, particularly because speed kind of matters in the early days was actually really, really great. And then, you know, you have a connection, a bond that kind of goes beyond whatever you're working on, which is a really comforting, I think, thing in those stressful moments of the early days of, of building a company. I think the downside is all of the arguments you've had your entire life now manifest itself at work. I think that's like sort of one of those funny things where the arguments we were having when we were six are now, you know, coming up in our late 20s, early 30s in front of coworkers. And then I think the second part was just, you know, it's hard to get away from it. You know, Thanksgiving dinner, that's what we're talking about, you know, that kind of thing. I think all in all, I, I actually typically say like, if you have a good relationship with your sibling or partner or whoever you're thinking about in your family, I think it's actually a really cool thing to do and a cool experience to go through, but enter with caution. And then tell me a little bit more about your family. Many people might not know that you are South Asian, you are Indian, you're specifically also Bengali. So tell me a little bit about your family and what was that like growing up? Yeah, my parents are are Indian. My mom was born in Kolkata. My dad was born in Bangladesh, but then during partition moved over to Kolkata. Dad moved out to the States in the 70s and then, you know, married my mom, brought her over. So, you know, kind of your typical first generation sort of South Asian background. And, you know, I grew up speaking Bengali. So Bengali was actually my first language, interestingly enough, despite the fact that I was born here. My mom was working. My grandmother raised me and she did not speak much English. And so, you know, I actually learned English in, in school. And we were kind of a classic, you know, Bengali family. You know, we read, write, sing. <laughs> and, and I danced in a lot of disciplines going up, including, you know, ballet and jazz. But I also did ODC as well. So like I had a sort of a multicultural background. I'd say a pretty traditional South Asian background growing up. My mom still laments the fact that I'm not a doctor which I, I keep telling her I'm like in my late 30s and I'm doing all right. But <laughs> she's sort of like the classic Bengali mom. Um, and I love them a lot. We're pretty close. They live out in the DC area, so I don't get to see them as much as I'd like, particularly over COVID. But they've been really great supporters of, of mine and my sisters as we've grown up. That's fantastic. Um, your parents and your family also provided some of that early seed funding. And you you've spoken in earlier podcasts about how you actually are risk averse and that they're is a problem in you know the ecosystem if many people who feel that life is more risky for them or they might not have savings or they might not have safety nets for them to go out and take that leap of entrepreneurship? What do you think needs to change in the VC ecosystem or the entrepreneurship ecosystem 
to allow for more diverse founders in terms of, you know, socioeconomic means or feeling that feeling of safety? You know, the seed funding was partially from myself, partially from my sister, partially from my parents, and it wasn't a lot, but it was enough for us to feel like, you know, certainly like I'd had highly compensated jobs before I started Havenly. So it's sort of a shame in some ways that that kind of access isn't really provided to people who hadn't had highly compensated jobs or maybe didn't have parents who were in a position to sort of, if not support um, financially, at least support in sort of the downside case. There's a lot of sort of thoughts around this, but I, I think the the most obvious one is how do you get the VC ecosystem away from the model that I think it sort of exists in, which is the the connection game? Like a good example is most VCs won't take cold intros, which I find really strange, right? Like it's like it's like this weird thing where you're trying to say you're looking for more diverse founders who come from different backgrounds. But then you're unwilling to actually open up your network to people that may not historically have access to your network. I don't understand that one. It's like one of those things where the practice seems really antithetical to sort of the declaration of openness. It annoys me. Like the reality is I had access not just because of my my family's financial circumstances, which I was lucky and grateful for, but also because I was able to afford going to exclusive private high schools and then exclusive Ivy League schools after that. But for people who can't afford that or didn't have access to that, and we know there are millions of them out there, it just feels strange to me that like an entire ecosystem is like, no, I don't want to talk to you. I also find it strange as a founder when VCs forget intersectionality. So, you know, after BLM, I was proud to see and happy to see that many VCs we're saying, hey, we need to invest in more Black and Hispanic founders. But then there's a second step, which is, are you also investing equally in Black women and yeah. Hispanic women? And yeah. I think that that's hard for VCs to sometimes square away. Totally. Um, any, anyway. Totally. Um, I mean, I think I think it's like the upside of a lot of these movements is like it's more acknowledged sort of widely that something needs to be done. I think the downside of many of these movements is the lack of real change and any real outcome you know, the durability of some of these changes too is something that I question a little bit. Like, is it something that we do because the conversation's hot around it? And will it last as we move into another era? But I am grateful that people are talking about it at a minimum. And that leads me to my next question, which is you have raised $58 million of venture capital to date. What was the hardest part of that? And then who have been your favorite investors and what made them so great? I think the hardest part about that is always the rejection. I don't know I don't know who likes rejection. I certainly don't. <laughs> and I think I think the reality is when you're raising money, regardless of how well you're doing as a company, getting those no's always feel hard, regardless of how rational or how kind that individual is. And a lot of people who've said no to me have been both rational and kind. When I raised seed in 2015 or 20, yeah, 2015, I think seed was in many ways the hardest round to raise for people that weren't white and male. The reason for that was you had very typically had very little quantifiable to prove yourself. And so people were sort of, quote, doing their pattern matching thing. And particularly in 2015, which is before a lot of these conversations, the reality is if you're pattern matching, you're pattern matching against a white male that, you know, worked at Google. Um, and so, so, you know, I thought it was, it was a very tough round to raise as a woman and a woman of color. Also a woman of color in Denver, Colorado, who's starting a, a company that was really focused on, on, on women. I mean, I got 140 no's. It was really kind of a dramatic 
entry into the venture capital world. And I say this a lot where it's like, I don't think I was prepared for that kind of overwhelming rejection in any other context in my life. For me, it was it was both alarming, but also over time became something that I really sort of not grateful for because I kind of wish it hadn't happened. But I think in many ways sort of helped me develop a lot more of a thicker skin around things like that. And, you know, sort of helped me be a lot more, you know, thoughtful about letting other people sort of dictate how I feel about myself, which is something that I recognize, you know, comes naturally to many people. It certainly didn't come very naturally to me. So having to go through that and sort of come out the other side in a more powerful way, I think was a was actually in some ways a very good personal and professional experience for me. I love to hear a little bit more about what were the qualities of some of your best investors? Because I think early on, we get enamored by brand names, but the qualities of great investors who follow you through the journey might be very, very different than just the name alone. So yeah. I'd love to hear what those qualities were for you. I think the biggest thing that made my best investors is first, the understanding that they're not the ones you know, in the driver's seat spending 12 to 15 hours a day stressing out about this thing, like this understanding that ultimately the CEO and the leadership team is running the company and it's their job to support that team for as long as they support that team. And I think that's, that's actually hard. I think sometimes you've seen like the VC brags, Twitter chains, like sometimes you see VCs being like, it's amazing. I discovered this company. There would be nothing without me. And my response to that is I know a lot of VCs that have like really screwed up a company. I don't know a ton of VCs that have like been extremely helpful and, you know, effectively made the company or, or, you know, was, was the deciding factor in whether or not the company made it quote unquote or didn't. So I think a, a VC that sort of like appreciates and respects the management team's decisions is, you know, a really, really great trait to have in an investor. I think the second is like a little bit of balance, sometimes particularly for first time entrepreneurs you know, the highs feel really high, the lows feel just as, you know, extremely low. But, you know, I think an investor who's had a little bit of perspective and a little bit of history, working history is able to come in and say, you know what, it's okay. You had this one bad thing happen. I've seen worse. You're going to fix it. It's going to be all right. And having that ability to sort of not freak out when your CEO or your leadership team or the rest of the board is freaking out is just such an incredible skill. Um, the two circumstances that I think have helped my best investors have these traits is a, they've been operators before, so they understand. Um, my worst investors almost always have been not operators. They've been just, you know, either people who've like stayed on the financial side or have been in like consulting or real estate or something of that sort. And, and they haven't really been the operator of a company. Also, my best investors have actually been successful before you know, whether or not Havenly does well or doesn't do well and whether it 10Xs or 40Xs is important, but it's not like make or break for them. Sometimes I think like what's interesting about brand is it like your best and your, your most blue chip investors, to some degree, of course they care whether or not you do well or don't. But to some degree, the really good ones, like the really good ones, the great brands who've been really successful, they're just there to help you because they have enough going on in their portfolio that's positive, that they don't need, you're not the one. And so it almost takes the pressure off you and allows you to sort of use them when you need them in a really material way. And I, and I think that's kind of the interesting part. I didn't expect 
certainly I could have expected like someone who's been in my shoes would be a better investor and, and a better partner. But the second one, that someone that like who'd been successful or at least had a lot of other sort of irons in the fire, so to speak, would be an easier person or an easier investor to sort of lean on or rely on, particularly in, in tougher situations, I think was a, a unique learning for me. I love that insight. I don't think that's very obvious or intuitive for many founders. So watch out for those qualities. Um, one of the things that makes Havenly really, really unique as a venture-backed company is that its headquarters are in Denver. Uh, and you've commented about this before. So what are some of the advantages or what are some of the quirks and the things that you've noticed have helped you as a business in building Havenly because it's in Denver? You know, one of the things that I think is lovely about being in Denver is you're a little removed from, I don't know, the intensity of the ecosystem on either coast. A company like ours looks and feels and runs like the the contours of the business are very different from other marketplaces. And I think sometimes some of our competitors that have not done as well have gotten caught in the trap of mimicking what someone else is, what Uber has done to grow or whatever. And, 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 you know, they've been in some ways almost a little less able to really focus on the dynamics of the business at hand because there's so much noise sort of surrounding how you grow or what you are as a consumer company sometimes when you live in these big hubs. And so for me, like being able to sort of be heads down and really just think about the business, what was best for my business as opposed to sort of what other people are doing. And that goes for everything, who you're hiring, like who your board members are, how much money you raise, how you're acquiring customers, et cetera, et cetera, um, I think was very, very helpful. I think the other thing about the Denver ecosystem is, you know, in Denver, we're like a big deal. <laughs> I think, I think, you know, we're a fairly small company, but there aren't that many consumer startups here in Denver. And so if you want to work for a consumer startup in Denver, we actually get a lot of like really outsized talent because it feels like, you know, we're sort of a medium-sized fish in a, in a fairly small pond. And so we're able to really punch above our weight class, so to speak, as it, when it comes to talent, which is like a really, really cool thing. And I think both of those things really sort of helped us become who we are. Um, it's also, you know, it's a really friendly community. Like people are genuinely helpful and willing to give back in a way that I, I don't, you know, I lived in New York City for 12 years before I moved to Denver. I don't remember that being the case in New York as much. Not that I didn't love my time there. It was just a different, a different sort of community feel. Home furnishings and just home improvement as a category was one of the quote unquote winners of COVID. How did COVID-19 affect the business of Havenly? I think it was broadly a very good thing for e-commerce players, a generally good thing for people in the home space, including us. And so we did benefit from some tailwinds. And the first part of COVID was hard. Um, you probably remember when the market was down 30%, everyone was a little afraid and so no one was spending. But by the time sort of mid-April, May rolled around, you know, we were doing quite well. The, the hard part about that is like COVID, you know, as a business leader, created a lot of uncertainty. And so when we saw a number of weeks of like severe downturn and sort of early March to late March, we decided that we needed to sort of cut costs, including unfortunately the hardest thing that I think CEOs have to do, and that's laying off individuals on the team. The weird part is we picked up so much that we actually ended up turning around and going back to those individuals and asking them to rejoin, which you think would be great. But those those individuals went through a lot of trauma in a really, really tough moment. And I kind of wish in some ways we'd had the foresight to understand what would actually, you know, sort of shake out 
But, you know, as you know, it was anyone's guess um, whether or not the economy would survive or, or sort of devolve into a deep recession. And so, you know, we we're trying to do the best we could. COVID really introduced a lot of uncertainty to the point where we actually were doing incredibly well, so well that we ended up running out of sort of the supply of designers. And then on top of it, you've probably seen a lot of news around supply chain activity around home goods. In some ways, better problems to have than a lack of demand. But I think uncertainty both ways is really tremendously hard. Things were shifting. The digital landscape and the advertising landscape was shifting. Consumer demands were shifting. So it was it was a lot of activity, and I think it was a really you know a real struggle in many ways for a lot of people on the team because it you know it always felt like there was a new problem sort of popping up elsewhere. I wouldn't say the smoke is completely clear, but we definitely have sort of our feet underneath us a little bit more. So we kind of understand what things are going to look like, and I think broadly the shift has been positive. So what COVID has done is it's it's really accelerated the adoption of sort of online both services and purchasing in the home furnishing space, which has historically lagged behind other categories. And I think, you know, really people feel really comfortable sort of buying online these days, which is a really fantastic thing for a company like ours. I think secondarily, just the interest in home has really changed. I think just like working from home um, isn't going to necessarily go away. The idea that we just spend more time and care a little bit more about our homes probably isn't going away. And I think that's broadly a very good thing for a company like ours, because our our premise is you should care enough about your home to really invest in the design of it. It's a little, I guess, dissonant to say a global pandemic that's really impacted you know millions of people and hundreds of thousands of lives in a negative way has been a positive for our business. But but I think for looking at silver linings, I think a lot of people in the e-commerce space and certainly in the home goods space feel like consumer behavior has shifted in our favor. Thank you so much for sharing that. I specifically also want to talk about this idea of the great migration, which is, you know, the war for talent has become now a global war, not just, you know, a yeah. local one where you're trying to hire somebody within the same city. So I'd love to hear a little about that because as you've already pointed out, recruiting is one of the hardest and toughest jobs of a of a founder. How's that affected that decision to be in Denver? How has that, you know, how's that been during this great migration times? It's been a double-edged sword, right? And in some ways, I think it's really great, by the way, that people can now work from Big Sky Montana and, you know, and still have a great job at whatever large tech company. I, I think I think fundamentally it's also good for Denver. We're seeing a lot of influx talent sort of flowing into the Denver community that we normally maybe wouldn't have seen, certainly wouldn't have seen in the, in this, these volumes. And I think that that's super exciting. And, and in the long run, I think it'll be great for cities like Denver and Austin. And you see it already. You see really, really talented individuals sort of flowing into the city. The downside is, um, again, we're sort of a medium-sized fish in a small pond. We were able to get sort of outsized talent just by being in Denver. You know, now we have to work a little harder for it, which honestly isn't a bad thing. It's just a thing. And and in some ways, you know, you capitalize your company based on how much you think you're actually going to end up spending. Um, and obviously, salaries and talent is a lot of where we end up spending. And so, you know, it did require us to think a little differently about how we capitalize the company. And, you know, we really had to rethink sort of the roles that we think are crucially important for Havenly and and how we both compensate and recruit for those roles how we retain talent for those roles, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, again, I don't know if it's a bad thing. In fact, probably for the long term, it's a good thing to have 
you know, a really strong sort of competent talent support system. But I do think it was, you know, it happened relatively quickly. So it caught us a little bit off guard. But again, my board was incredibly responsive to this. And, you know, we were able to, I think, right size a lot of a lot of things very quickly. And again, hopefully all of this talent flowing into Denver as they get more acclimatized to the city and the ecosystem, you know, I'm really hopeful that they contribute quite a bit to to Denver and its tech scene. Well, what's next for Havenly? What's next? What's in the future? What are you really most excited about? I think what we get most excited about is to continue to offer services that our customers want. And so, you know, we're exploring new avenues around that. We're starting to see more people interested in different types of services. And so we're looking at how we can deliver on those as, again, interest in home and the home space in general sort of continues to continues to persist. I think a lot of people talk about like funding rounds or, or exits. Um, I think for me, it's just sort of growing our reach, like serving more and more people, more and more home. You know, that's sort of where we get excited. And then for me personally, it's always growing our team. I think it's the, the surprise thing for me as a CEO has always been how much I've like enjoyed growing our team and hiring the right people and having a really great team underneath us. You know, we're excited. We're, we're here. Um, we're here to help if anyone, <laughs> if anyone needs some design help. But I think for us, it's, it's more about, you know, just continuing to sort of deliver high quality experiences for our customers. Lee Mayer is the founder and CEO of Havenly. That's it for the show this week. Next week, I'm chatting with Deepak Jagani, founder of Nuva Cargo, a software-powered logistics company. If you like this show, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. And share it with someone who you think would love to hear Lee's story. Natalia Alcantara produced this series. Golda Arthur is our showrunner, and Josh Deng is our sound engineer. Sahil Ansari composed our theme music, and Mina Shoab designed our art. Thanks for listening.